Chieftain, if you can, of us can, in captain of ten, with ten a hackles, halt, 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 That's the first movement of Three Madrigals by Max Graff. The text is from the poet Wallace Stevens. We heard the vocal ensemble Quince. That's a piece that was brought into the studio today by Ellen McSweeney. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and today's show is the first in what I hope will be a recurring series called Listening Party. And that's where I invite several of my musical friends into the studio to bring a piece of music, or in some cases, two pieces of music. And then we're going to have a beer, and we're going to sit around like old friends and talk about the music (laughs) that we hear on the program. So today I want to welcome my special guests, Ellen McSweeney, Sam Scranton, Dominic Johnson, and Douglas Perkins. Thanks, everybody, for coming down. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So, Ellen, tell me about this piece. What made you want to bring it in? What what, uh, captures your imagination with this music? Well, you know... um the Quince Contemporary Vocal Ensemble are sort of Chicago-based, at least a couple of their members are, and um, I listened to their whole album when it was released several months ago and was just really impressed with what was on it. This particular piece I think is really fun because sort of the the unaccompanied vocal quartet is an old form. You know, I was thinking about how with unaccompanied vocal music, it kind of really feels like we've come full circle because, and these are madrigals. I was just going to say that. You hear the name madrigal. Yeah, it's a contemporary take on a madrigal. So I kind of love the peppiness and uh, all the kind of unexpected things that happen in this really short form. And the performance is just so great. So that's kind of what drew me to it. Who wants to jump in on that? What do you guys think (laughs) when you hear that music? I think I want to hear like five more times. What I thought (laughs) was really cool about hearing it was just that um, hearing the all of the different little techniques they were using. So I'm, for those who are just tuning in, I am Doug, whose voice you will hear. Uh, I'm a percussionist, and so I'm always, I'm a timbre guy. So I was, all of the tiny little um, vocal sounds they're making, even down to the way they would break up the word, like the last word, whose, just kept, I wanted to hear that more and more times of how they were breaking the word between them and like perfecting each little sound. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Especially the accompanimental parts where, I mean, the melody is really nice, but the accompanimental parts, he's really varying the sounds that they're making. I was thinking about um, Swingle Singers, um, those guys, and also the Andrew Sisters. Some of those tight harmonies make me think of that old uh, 1930s stuff. Absolutely. Well, let's turn. Uh, we'll come back to Ellen in a little bit. Let's turn to a piece that Doug brought in. Tell us about Industry by Michael Gordon. Michael Gordon's Industry is a piece for amplified solo cello that uses cello and it's amplified and it's distorted. As I said before, I'm a timbre guy, which I talk about this a lot with people who are not percussionists. So maybe people like Ellen, who play melodic instruments, who need melody and harmony to drive their lives. For me, I like we big do. shapes. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I like, I like cool sounds. I like big shapes. And I like rhythms. Or I just I, I listen to different things that drive it. And so this piece is sort of just one big phrase, one big sort of inevitable moment. So that really drives me. And also, I think, as a reformed... Uh, rocker and a guy who used to play guitars and stuff. Are all just, percussionists reformed rockers out of curiosity? I'm not reformed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm reformed either. It's just that I can make bad life choices that have brought me to being a classical percussionist. Um, you either, unless you're a melody person, there are two people. There's the people who come in as a, like a pianist who then somehow fall in love with the marimba. And I am a drum set player who somehow plays marimba every day. But so that sort of thing really gets to me. And this is a piece that I heard sort of in my formative New Music Times, and it just really sort of caught me. That so. makes me really want to hear it. <laughs> Let's have a listen to Maya Beiser performing Industry by Michael Gordon.
sound from the solo cello it's hard to imagine playing that piece and not being 100 percent committed to it it's hard to imagine playing that piece and not changing as a human by the end of it <laughs> that's my advisor a solo cello performing industry by michael gordon a piece that was brought into us by percussionist doug perkins uh, we're having a listening party here on relevant tones my guests are percussionist Ooh. doug perkins <laughs> violist and dj dominic johnson percussionist and composer Sam Scranton, and violinist and blogger Ellen McSweeney. Thanks again, everybody, for being here. Who wants to talk about that piece? Well, I mean, something that I thought was really interesting about that is um, how at first when the kind of, you know, the distortion, before you really realize what's going on, you know, the distortion kind of comes in and it just, you don't even, aren't even really aware of it. It just kind of functions to augment some of the properties kind of natural to the cello. You know, like you hear those those intervals and it kind of just, like you kind of pay attention to the beating and the in-tuneness of the chords and the intervals that are already there. And then it kind of slowly dawns on you that it's not just a property of the cello. It's like it's turning into something else over time. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, I loved also how um, you would hear... Those notes come in below. You can hear actual, I don't know if those are called. Subharmonics. Sub, yeah, yeah, subharmonics. You hear these low pitches come in, I think augmented again by the by the distortion. But it really, really makes those things pop. One of the funny things I was thinking while I was listening to it, and I know of a couple of my violinist friends, I think that's how it sounds in their head sometime. When a violinist friend will sing to me, or a string friend will sing some of their nastier stuff. 
I'd be like, and I'm like, you sound like you're singing heavy metal guitar, but it's not quite that. So it's it almost feels like it's bringing this like the nastiness from in their head out through out through using yeah, distortion. I love that idea because, and, and it's funny, as Sam started to talk, I had really that same thought where I was like, okay, it's a solo cello. And, and the thought is sort of like, she's not alone. Yeah. There's somebody yeah. else in there. You know, like, <laughs> and, and for me, is very much kind of this relationship between the human and the machine. And I love what you're saying, which kind of teases that out even further, which is there's something kind of in the psyche that the distortion and the amp and the machine allows to sort of emerge or it kind of makes you more powerful. It's like putting on a Superman suit or putting on like your Hulk outfit. Oh my God, it makes sounds like that. How could you not think of yourself as a superhero, you know? <laughs> well, it also takes me to a place and probably anyone that's ever owned a guitar and been at home a little too late after perhaps having a beer or two where you're sitting in your room with your amp cranked up and you feel as cool as this record sounds yeah. where you're just like, I am the man. I'm doing this. I am, I am the coolest. And so it kind of, for me, gets to that nastiness that I think, again, I think it is, it's like, for me, it is this externalizing of this, like, the deep, passionate person we are inside of ourselves when we hear it. Let's go in what I suspect may be a completely different direction and play what Sam brought in. Sam, what can you tell us about the music? Sure. So uh, the first piece, Three Minutes for Orchestra, it's from uh, Peter Oblinger's Altar series. He kind of takes the same material and, and, and uses three different pieces to kind of express it differently. And so Altar One is this piece, it's an installation, where the audience is invited to stand at these listening towers and there are, are headphones and um, microphones. And so they put headphones on and then kind of, you know, are basically just listening to their surrounding environment, but in kind of an augmented fashion. And then um, the third version is the one we're going to hear uh, right now called uh, Three Minutes for Orchestra. And it also um, makes use of the recorded material from the listening towers. All right, let's have a listen. This is one of the pieces from the Altar series by Peter Oblinger. We're going to hear three minutes for orchestra. The SWR Symphony is performing with Sylvan Camberling conducting.
It's a short piece by Peter Oblinger from the Altar series. We heard three minutes for orchestra, the SWR Symphony Orchestra performing with Sylvan Kimberling conducting. Music brought in by composer and percussionist Sam Scranton. Sam, I'd never heard this composer before. I never heard the piece. Thanks for bringing it in. Yeah, of course. Glad to. <laughs> it's this really wonderfully inexorable quality to the piece, especially the way the piano just keeps cyclically rising over and over and over again. He chose to end there, but it could have just started exactly. over again. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's exactly the point, yeah. Mm. And then it's also, to me, like, kind of wonderfully disorienting to hear the, the layering of textures from the solo piano to, you know, this incredible thick texture all of a sudden. I mean, is that intentional on the composer's part? Yeah, he's actually got a lot of pieces that are exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the best, right? <laughs> yeah, he, no, he yeah he works. Um, he a lot of he makes kind of a lot of these series of works. You know, like I mentioned, what we're about to hear that um, work Angela Davis from the the Voices in Piano song cycle, and that's as I said, it's one of you know eighty pieces from this cycle, um, lasting over four hours, and so kind of as he makes a piece like I think he kind of conceptualizes like in his oeuvre you know and so tries to make other things that relate back to it or can maybe kind of comment on other things that he's made or just like bring out a slightly different quality um, and something else and so he's got another piece that I think is like an hour long it's for guitar and samples and the guitar it's exactly a scale like that that repeats and then there are these little bursts of noise and analyzing and tracking and mapping perfectly um, an audio recording. Doug, you're a terrible guy. What were you thinking? A whole lot of things. Interestingly, well, yeah, I felt very um, comforted by the scale and the framework. Do you know how he chose those particular snapshots from the towers? Um, I don't know. I mean, like the pieces, it's very specific in that it's like 40 seconds of noise surrounded by this many seconds of piano, you know, and it just like, as you heard, it repeats three times Mm. and then it's done. But I don't know how he chose, you know, that from obviously if there were these uh, recording towers that were up in a plaza somewhere for days, you know, how did he select those three 40 second snapshots? You know, I, and that I don't know. Then my bigger thing is a performer that I've was obsessing about is I am miniature phobic. It's rare that I'll ever play a piece that is like six miniature movements. You know, I realized in thinking about what to bring today, everything I like is like a 12 minute blast at least. Mm. Yeah. And so, so in hearing such a beautiful small bite from an orchestra, how in an orchestra concert, I just was thinking like, how do you present that in a way that does its service? That is not the stagehands coming out and shuffling and people warming up and then you get these three minutes and by the time everyone has stopped coughing the piece is over <laughs> like right. that's all like i was just obsessed with how <laughs> how do you do this piece service uh, justice 
And it's so. Well, the other thing I was thinking about. Sorry, I'm talking so much. You brought the beer. I'm. He's planning. He's, maybe he's um, planning on the portrait concert. But it's what's lovely, <laughs> right. right? But it's so lovely that it, when it was over, I was a little sad that it was over. I could have used four more. I could have used. Who, know, who knows I how many more? Same way too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I always think. I wish this was like a 60 minute piece, right. and it just. Went but out. it sounds like he is someone who just kind of creates, and there's there's sort of an internal logic to it, which is quite separate from how it's going to get performed and what like means might be available to get it performed and yeah basically get eaten in the the norms of the of the concert hall maybe the way we just heard it is is also kind of a special way to hear it or we can really you know rewind hear it again whatever i would really want you know yeah i would love to be in a concert and to like have that perfect moment and to yeah. have it well yeah. prepared it's like like for me like Mahler two when the orc when all of the singers come in so quietly and you have to wait so long it's like it's Oh, you know, like it's presented so, and you want th that much care for a piece like this when it's presented yeah. so that everyone feels it the same yeah. way. Well, let's hear another piece by the same composer. So this piece is four and a half hours long. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll excerpt it. <laughs> We're going to hear the movement called Angela Davis from the song cycle Voices and Piano, although I should point out that this is only for piano. Our pianist is Mark Noop. Before anything else, I'm a black woman. And I dedicated my life to the struggle for the liberation of black people, my enslaved and imprisoned people. I am a communist because I'm convinced that the reason we have been forcibly compelled to eke out an existence at the very lowest level of American society has to do with the nature of capitalism. If we're going to rise out of our oppression, our poverty, if we're going to cease being the targets of, lynch mob, of the lynch mob mentality of racist policemen, we will have to destroy the American capitalist system. We will have to obliterate a system in which a few wealthy capitalists are guaranteed the privilege of becoming richer and richer, whereas the people who are forced to work for the rich, and especially black people, never take any significant step forward. I'm a communist because I believe that black people with whose labor and blood this country was built have a right to a great deal of the wealth that has been hoarded in the hands of the Hughes, the Rockefellers, the Kennedys, the DuPonts, all the super powerful white capitalists of America. Further, I'm a communist because I believe that black men should not be coerced into fighting a racist imperialist war in Southeast Asia where the U.S. government is violently denying a non-white people the right to control their own lives just as they violently suppressed us for hundreds of years. I'm in prison, but we should remember this. There will continue to be frame-ups, such as mine, and we will continue to be forced to hide. Just because they caught me doesn't mean that every one of us will be captured. They set all their running dogs on me. This they can afford to do only a few times over. We must refuse to allow them to strike terror among us, for this was obviously the intent of their actions. Furthermore, because of the intensified repression we are experiencing, we have to begin to talk about creating a viable apparatus to allow freedom fighters, black freedom fighters, thoughtful by the police to remain in this country and to remain active in the black liberation struggle. Mr. 
I'm sure that J. Edgar Hoover, in collusion with Nixon and Reagan, decided to make an example of him. The FBI unleashed an enormous amount of manpower in this search, much, much more than they can afford to use ordinarily. Anyone who believes such flagrant lies has been terribly deceived by the Nixon Reagan clique, for they're the ones who devise such underhanded methods of crushing our struggle. I'm a communist, a black woman communist. Freedom also means the government is attempting to further attack and terrorize black people and as they have done in the case of George Jackson, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Erica Huggins, and I could go on and on and on. Therefore, black people have to begin to talk about rising up not only in the defense of political prisoners, but in their own defense. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, which could determine me continuing to fight with all my enemies for the freedom of my people. Well, there's no need for me to cry because I've been captured. But there's all the more reason to be strong and keep fighting. During the time I was participating in the efforts to free the Solidarity Brothers, I continually warned that any one of us could be set up as the next target of the government's policy of uh, repression of the repression of black revolutionaries. That's pianist Mark Noop performing Angela Davis from Voices and Piano by composer Peter Ottlinger, brought in by Sam Scranton. Sam, uh, what is, are we hearing the voice of Angela Davis? Who, who is Angela Davis? Yeah, Angela Davis is speaking, um, and she was uh, you know, uh, involved in the Communist Party, um, a feminist in the late 60s. And something that I think is kind of interesting about this piece is the fact that, like, she's obviously using, like, incredibly kind of incendiary language. And if we take Peter Ablinger at his word that this is a song cycle, you know, and this is, like, his setting of her text, it's kind of insane how the pianist is basically performing in kind of an acrobatic way, like, everything she says. But also it's like, you know, the pianist isn't there to really provide any additional commentary. It's not like Peter Oblinger has taken a stand on what she's saying and kind of interpreted it for us at all. You know, he hasn't made it sound like this is a triumphant speech. It's like it's all just kind of laid out there in this neutral way. And I think that's kind of interesting, like how that combination of just like neutral and quietly virtuosic piano playing combined with, you know, this just like really um, incendiary language. It's, I don't know. I feel like I haven't really heard anything else like that. I thought this piece was just incredible. And it had uh, so many kind of personal resonances for me. I saw Angela Davis speak when I was in college and she's still alive, still speaking, still doing her thing. It strikes me that so much of it kind of sounded like it could have been like a, a lead, you know, sort of like secco, like piano accompaniment, support the singer, and then the sort of gentle. But this is the kind of text that you so rarely hear, given that kind of treatment, where like here's like the secco recitative, and here's the lyrical unfolding of her vision or whatever. And I, I thought it didn't feel like a political musical setting, but I think just the very act of, you know, setting this text with piano casts it in a whole different light. 
You're listening to Relevant Tones, a show featuring the music of contemporary composers. Today's show is called Listening Party. We've invited some friends into the studio to bring music and have some great conversation about it. My guests are Ellen McSweeney, Sam Scranton, Dominic Johnson, and Doug Perkins. To subscribe to our podcast and for streaming versions of this and all previous episodes, you can visit relevanttones.com. Today's show is Listening Party. I've invited guests into the studio to bring some music in. All of this music I have been unfamiliar with, and I think many of our listeners will be unfamiliar with it too. So it's really great to hear new music and great to just sit around with friends and listen to music. How often do we get to do this anymore? It's Not as often cool. as we yeah. should. I agree. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. So thanks again, everybody, for coming down. This would Hosting these parties for each other would be a good thing to do in life because you get used to your playlist or the... 10 composers you keep looking to, but when you have a friend come over, you learn so much. I'll bring the Mav table with microphones. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got the cough button. <laughs> there you go. Everybody always loves the cough buttons There on has radio. to be a cough button or it's not a party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, let's go back to Ellen. I think we'll end the program today with Dominic. So, Ellen, tell us about the other piece that you brought in. Yeah, this is a piece called Square Pushers by Amanda Fury, who is, I think, a pretty young Irish composer who's currently getting her doctorate at Princeton. This piece, I guess, is a little aleatoric in nature in the sense that Amanda rearranged little scraps of paper that had just really small kind of sonic elements. So that's one of the organizing principles of the piece. And again, this is the Quince Contemporary Vocal Ensemble, the quartet of four um, singers. All right, let's have a listen. Square Pushers by Amanda Fury.
The Power of the Human Voice. That's the Quince Vocal Ensemble performing Square Pushers by composer Amanda Fury. Ellen, do you know the text? Do you know what they're singing about? I I don't know what it is. It's what they titled their album after. They, they called the album Realign the Time. I think the text might be original to the composer. I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. I'm not sure. We, we should check, I guess. But, yeah, that's something we can try um, to find out. Yeah, it just strikes me that, uh, you know, I was raised by singers, and I think there's a you know a really deep reason that this music appeals to me it's so analog i don't know there's something really touching about hearing just that little like vocal fry before that last low note you know is all alone and it's so flawed in a way but um i was just gonna talk about that moment there's some some exposed moments in the piece that i think are just fantastic absolutely beautiful i mean again a textural kind of thing where the textures go away and you've got that note i think it works really really well it's really arresting like really intimate yeah yeah, it reminds me, I don't want to reduce anything by saying it reminds me of something else, but um, <laughs> that's, I guess, how I have some kind of way of understanding it. But the first time I went to see an orchestra was a Seattle Symphony, and they played the planets. And um, at the end of, I think it's Neptune, there's this woman's choir that comes in, and it, um, they had them come in on the second floor, so you couldn't see them. They were disembodied, and they just sang out into the hall. And so there was this sound that you didn't know where it came from. And then at the end, they close the doors. There's a diminuendo like that, and it's actually a recurring scale up. And they close the doors, so the sound just sort of faded out. And this is a really nice nostalgic moment there to hear it. I think by comparing that to the planets, though, you didn't reduce it. You just, like, blew it way up. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I was thinking, you know, Meredith Monk or something, which would be, like, that would be, like, the reductive kind of, like, (laughs) oh, yeah, this is something, you know, I've heard in this. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, but she's also amazing too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I also just thought about uh, this difference, the imperfections that you were talking about, where, you know, we have such a rigid sort of way of dividing the scale up, um, at least lately, (laughs) (laughs) um, in terms of different scale degrees and the the way that we do it. And um, the piece that that you played earlier had a detuned piano, as you called it. And some of those ways that those different intervals are derived are more natural um, relationships, more. Uh, whole ratios and uh, it made me just think that it sounds so organic and natural to have some of those imperfections some of those non-square divided up notes in the scale well and nowadays it's such a choice to allow the intimacy of imperfection to make it to recorded music Mm. because again my i guess my inner record producer was kicking on and thinking like 
the, like the first time I heard something not perfect and was like, oh, you would, no, you wouldn't fix that. <laughs> oh, and they kept yeah. drawing me in by like, oh my God, oh, they're allowing us to, they're allowing us in to the little sounds. Hi, right, let's end the program today with Dominic Johnson and the piece that you brought in, Dominic. Um, I brought in a piece called Asintias. I'm just going to, Give that attempt at pronouncing it. Uh, <laughs> by, Sanskrit for those of you who are <laughs> listening. <laughs> uh, it's by Jan Sandström. He's a uh, Swedish composer. Uh, I'll just read about it. Uh, the title's taken from Eastern mysticism, where its basic idea is to go beyond the world of opposites in some way. It uh, reminds us of the world that Sandström is trying to create. I'm paraphrasing some liner notes here. Sorry. The whole faith of Buddhism circles around a so-called absolute visual angle that is attained in asintyas, so I guess a world of non-thinking, where the unity of opposites become a lively experience. That's fantastic. We don't have time to play the entire piece, but we'll play as much as we can. Here's the Stockholm Chamber Orchestra, led by Leif Sagerstrom, to perform Asintias by Jan Sandström.
It's a piece for string orchestra called Asintias by Jan Sandström. We heard the Stockholm Chamber Orchestra, Leif Sagerström, conducting. Music brought to us by Dominic Johnson for our listening party today on Relevant mm-hmm. Tones. Dominic, you know, given the uh, the title of the piece, its references to, to Buddhism, to the unification of opposites, I feel like a listener could really go crazy inferring symbolism in the music. I mean, wh- wh- what do you think of when you hear this music? Um, well, when I played it, it, it just sort of gave me this joyful feeling of um, something un- I never felt before, like a, a kind of terrain that I'd never explored before. But when I was listening to it, I was thinking about how so hard to avoid uh, cultural programming that we have and our understanding of the nature of reality, et cetera. And um, like, how would you actually, if somebody gave you the job to, you know, wipe away your understanding of what reality was, like, is this tabletop really solid or whatever? Like, how could you go about doing that? Well, maybe you could clockwork orange style, play somebody something that's so different from what they're used to that they would be like reprogrammed and Seems maybe this is some attempt at something like that. <laughs> That's a fascinating way. Uh, no one's ever said that on the program before. Uh, <laughs> this music will reprogram your brain. <laughs> Hopefully, none of our listeners driving. You know, the red lights and the green lights do have meaning. Um, <laughs> or are you projecting them forward from your consciousness? <laughs> you are, but continue to project them forward from your consciousness, <laughs> so as to not uh, disturb others who are <laughs> also yeah. projecting them forward. <laughs> Ellen, well, it's funny because. I I, I am like almost a Buddhist, you know, at this point. So so it's fascinating to hear. I was thinking we have so much Christian orchestral music, a good bit of like Jewish orchestral music, or at least music that is somehow derived from those traditions, those texts, those symbols. And it's really fascinating to hear a string orchestra, which I still identify very much as a Western beast, tackling a Buddhist idea of non-dualism or sort of sort of this. Uh, and I, th- I thought that was really fascinating. I heard so much busyness, so much activity, a lot of pain and suffering. That was my mind, sort of uh, the symbolism that I was projecting was quite a bit of, of struggle and suffering, which is a, a common theme in Buddhism and kind of seeing all the, and the individuality of the players, the parts are so separate. Every once in a while, you'd hear that last person finish a glissando or something, and, you know, there it was. So our collective humanity, but also the individuality, I heard that a lot in the piece. I was just thinking how cool, I think we programmed a decent concert tonight. Yeah, no, exactly. I was just thinking <laughs> that myself. I mean, you know, you, you get four people, it doesn't matter who they are, any four people, and you're going to get four very different things just automatically, just based on DNA. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. The, there's a lot of connections, I think. Yeah. Like, I felt some industriness in your choice, Dominic. Oh, definitely. Some heavy metal in there. But then also, I think, I think there was a lot of connective tissue between all of our choices to each yeah. other's choices. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking too. I mean, again, just not to harp on this theme, but it's so interesting and fun to listen to music with other people. And and not only to to get exposed to new music, but to hear music you maybe already know, but in a different way. And uh, again, maybe this is a weird thing to say, you know, because I think myself included, a lot of us, we've all kind of forgotten how to listen to music. I mean, it's, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go to people's houses all the time (laughs) and sit there and crank music and just listen for hours at a time. And, And I myself don't do that as often as I would like to. I mean, so I think this is just, you know, I think we can all pat ourselves on the back. And <laughs> I was just saying an acute thing, what this show did. Uh, so last night, I, my son was wondering what I was doing, and I told him that I had to come in and I had to bring in a piece that I cared about. And so he sat and listened. We, he never To get a seven-year-old to sit down and listen to a half hour of classical music is a, is a feat. And, but he did, and he was listening. And then afterwards, he said, I know what you need to send. 
needs to be the surprise symphony of Haydn. <laughs> and then we went to YouTube and we, he like he was dropping some knowledge on me last night. Whoa! <laughs> so we had a surprise. Apparently, second graders know surprise symphony. Uh. Yeah, and I got a stern warning like, don't turn up too loud. It's gonna get crazy. In a <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's fantastic. Oh, I love it. Well, I hope our listeners enjoyed the program as much as we enjoyed putting it together, and feel free to host your own listening parties. Let's just go around really quickly, and everybody tell me how our listeners can find you in the uh, the webosphere and social media and all of that. Ellen? Uh, your listeners can just find me at my website, ellenmcsweeney.net, um, and I'm also on Twitter. It's just Ellen underscore McSweeney. You can find me at samscranton.com. I can be found at dojomusic.com. Tumblr.com. That's T-U-M-B-L-R. And for all things Doug Perkins, you can go to DougPerkins.com or Doug Perkins on Twitter. Ellen, Sam, Dom, and Doug, thank you so much for coming down and being part of the show today. Thank you. Thank Thank you you so much. Relevant Tones is produced by Jesse McCorders, with special thanks to Rory Hartong-Redden. Relevant Tones is made possible in part by the generous support of GCM Grubner, the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, the Amphion Foundation, and the listener-supporters of the WFMT Fine Arts Circle. This project is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Art Works. I'm Seth Bosted, and this is the WFMT Radio Network.